Welcome to the PTAB podcast. We are a group of paediatric trainees in the Southwest who every month review a selection of articles that we find useful for our practice. These are taken from the BMJ, Archives of Disease in Childhood Journals. For the full articles, please go to their website, journals.bmj.com. Please note, these are our own opinions and are produced for educational purposes only. They are not intended to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Felicity. I'm a paediatric registrar based in the Seven Deanery. Today, I'm going to talk about an original research article, which was published in the March edition of Archives of Disease in Childhood by Ashling Rafferty and colleagues. They asked the question, infant E. coli urinary tract infection, is it associated with meningitis? So why did I choose this article? I was interested in this paper because I've had a couple of cases recently which have led me to query how frequently E. coli urinary tract infections are associated with meningitis. As an example, I was involved in the case of a three-week-old infant who presented with poor feeding. When their urine culture came back positive for E. coli, there was a level of anxiety because the infant had never had a lumbar puncture. There was a perceived high level risk of associated meningitis. Now, even though the infant had never had a documented fever, no one wanted to miss a meningitis diagnosis. So, where do the concerns about E. coli urinary tract infections and meningitis stem from? We know urinary tract infections are common in infants. 7% of febrile infants under 2 years of age are diagnosed with UTIs. Rates of associated bacteremia in those with urinary tract infections are high. That's led to a concern that organisms from the bloodstream can penetrate the blood-brain barrier and cause meningitis. One study which caused concern was completed in the 1970s. It was a small study by Bergstrom and colleagues which showed out of 31 infants who had urinary tract infections, six also had bacterial meningitis. That's nearly 20% having coexistent bacterial meningitis, which is extremely high. However, the population of the study was small, the organisms cultured weren't stated, and the urine samples weren't collected in a sterile manner. Since then, several studies have sought to investigate the relationship between UTIs and meningitis. One of the largest studies, which included 20 pooled studies, gave a prevalence rate of coexisting UTI and meningitis of 0.25%, which is much lower. Another issue adding to the diagnostic difficulty is that children with urinary tract infections can have associated sterile pleocytosis. Now, in case you're like me and you forgot, pleocytosis refers to a raised white cell count in the CSF relative to age. So, in this case, it's referring to children with urinary tract infections having raised white cells in the CSF secondary to inflammation without associated bacterial meningitis. This study aimed to address these issues and it aimed to find out For those with E. coli urinary tract infections, how many also had bacterial meningitis 
to determine prevalence. They also carried out E. coli PCR testing on CSF samples. For the secondary objective, the study asked, for those with E. coli urinary tract infections, how many have sterile pleocytosis? So on to the study design and methods. This study was performed in a tertiary paediatric centre in Dublin. It's a retrospective cohort study, which analysed samples collected over a five-year time period between 2014 and 2019. Their study population was children aged between eight days and two years. They chose to exclude neonates under a week of age because they felt the risk factors and pathogenesis of bacterial infections was different. To perform the study, they analysed two groups of children, those who had CSF samples taken and those with a pure growth of E. coli in their urine. They then compared the two groups to find out how many children had grown E. coli in their urine and had a lumbar puncture within 48 hours. They also checked if any of the children had positive blood cultures. They were intending to check if having an E. coli bacteremia was associated with meningitis. Some children had multiple E. coli urinary tract infections, so they included the first sample which grew E. coli. Additional samples were included as an episode if they were taken at least two weeks apart. They had E. coli PCR testing in their lab and they performed CSF PCR testing for E. coli in three main circumstances. Firstly, on all CSF samples with pleocytosis. Secondly, where E. coli had been cultured from somewhere else, such as on a blood or urine sample. And thirdly, when the patient was known to be at high risk of E. coli infection because of an underlying medical condition. There were some circumstances when they couldn't perform the test. For example, if the sample was of low volume, the other issue was blood in the CSF sample. They couldn't perform the PCR analysis on samples which contained lots of red blood cells, so more than a thousand red blood cells to one white blood cell. When defining pleocytosis, they interpreted the number of white blood cells in the CSF independently of the number of red blood cells. So, on to the results. They included over 2,000 E. coli positive urines and a similar number of CSF samples. When they then compared the two groups, 314 had CSF samples taken within 48 hours of a positive E. coli urine. Although they included children up to two years of age, the majority who had CSF taken alongside the urine culture were infants under six months of age. There were only 20 episodes included of those over six months of age. E. coli positive blood cultures were relatively low in this study. For example, for those one to six months of age, only 3% had E. coli positive blood cultures. In the same age group, nearly a quarter had pleocytosis. They were able to perform E. coli PCR testing in 80% of the samples with pleocytosis in addition to the standard culture. Interestingly, there were no cases of coexisting E. coli UTI and E. coli meningitis in this study. Limitations, which the authors recognise, are that the study was limited by data being anonymous. 
The authors, therefore, weren't able to obtain further clinical information, such as the treatment courses children received. And, as a retrospective study, selection bias could have been introduced. I feel caution is also needed because this was a single centre study and the number of patients, particularly those with bacteremia, were still relatively small. So, to conclude, will this paper adjust my practice? The authors felt there was a potential to reduce routine lumbar punctures in infants up to six months of age with an E. coli urinary tract infection diagnosis. In my day-to-day practice, most lumbar punctures I perform are on febrile infants who are under three months of age. They frequently appear unwell and there isn't a clear source of infection. Before making the decision to perform a lumbar puncture, I don't usually have the urine sample yet, let alone the culture results. This paper won't adjust my decision making for that group of children. I think this is largely helpful for those infants, similar to the case I discussed at the start, who are relatively well, have a diagnosis of an E. coli urinary tract infection, and who haven't already had a lumbar puncture. This paper and the evidence would reassure me that actually coexisting E. coli urinary tract infection and bacterial meningitis rates are low. So I wouldn't make a decision to perform a lumbar puncture on a child outside of the early neonatal period solely based on them having an E. coli UTI. My other learning point is that I wasn't aware there was such a high rate of pleocytosis associated with E. coli urinary tract infections. Such information may adjust the conversations I have with my microbiology colleagues in the future. I really hope you enjoyed hearing about the paper and I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Hello, I'm Bex and I'm a paediatric ST3 based in Severn and the Educational Fellow for the region. It's a real pleasure to speak to you about this month's Archives of Disease and Childhood and pick a journal that I hope you might find useful. This article has already been discussed in this week's ADC podcast, but very briefly, so I thought I'd go into it in a little bit more depth. So I've chosen an original research article, which was published in April's archives, and it's called Assessing the Optimal Time Interval Between Growth Measurements Using a Combined Data Set of Weights and Heights from 5,948 Infants by Professor Charlotte Wright and her colleagues at the University of Glasgow and with added data sets from Finland and a couple centres within the UK. I picked this article because as an ST3, I've just recently passed my clinical exams. Congratulations to me. And for those that have previously revised for it, then you know all too well the phrase, I would obtain the child's height, weight and head circumference and plot it on an age-appropriate growth chart. Or if you mean you've woken up in cold sweats in the middle of the night saying it. And fair enough, that's because it is important and it's a relatively non-invasive form of assessment. Having said this phrase in my exams lots of times, if someone asks me, well, how frequently should I measure a child's weight? I'm not sure I'd know what the evidence suggests. As I'm sure you all know, the World Health Organization growth charts were derived from measurements from healthy breastfed babies whose mothers did not smoke. 
Each chart contains a blurb about when to weigh. And in babies less than one years of age, the recommendation is to weigh enough in the first few days to weeks of life to make sure that the birth weight has been regained. But then not until aged eight weeks old, 12 weeks old and 16 weeks old. And then finally at one year. If you had concerns, however, then it's possible to do more frequent measurements. But again, the World Health Organization recommends if the baby's less than six months of age, then not to repeat this measurement more frequently than once a month. And if the baby was aged six to 12 months of age, then maximum frequency would be once every two months. This brings us on nicely as to why we don't measure a baby every day of its life to ensure that it's gaining weight. The article discusses two terms when interpreting measurements. Firstly, signal. This is the actual underlying growth trend. This is what we want to know to ensure a baby is thriving. And the other term is noise. So this is measurement variation. Because we are weighing the baby too frequently uh, and you're just seeing natural variation or because of measurement error. So I think user variability, dodgy scales, the baby's just had a wee. Noise measurements are misleading and unhelpful. So surely the World Health Organization already has a, a variation around the mean, a standard deviation that it takes into account. Well, they do when measuring the length of an infant, something not routinely done in the UK. The World Health Organization already has a technical error measurement based on previous studies, and that's of 0.33 centimetres. So people's measurements varied by about this much between professionals performing the measurement. You might think the same probably doesn't need to exist for weights because we just pop the baby on the scales. But rather than there being technician variability, there is still baby variability. So did that baby just wee and now they're 10 to 20 grams lighter? This is all noise. And the article looks at two things in order to clarify the impact that noise has on signal. So firstly, there's this large data set from the UK and Finland consisting of heights and weights from just under 6,000 infants aged 0 to 1 years old. These studies provide lots of data over a large time period. So this is looking at signal, a trend of infants' weight over time. And specifically, they looked at measurements taken at two weeks intervals, four week intervals and eight week intervals apart from one another. Then there was a smaller study of just 20 babies aged one to 12 months from Glasgow who were measured three times a day over a really short period of just two to three days. So this study was measuring the baby's weight variability across a very short period of time, which gives us a measurement of spread, i.e. standard deviation. So they were just measuring noise with this study. And based on this, they were able to calculate a standard deviation of the weight difference, which they calculated as 116 grams. Once they had both these data sets, they could then ascertain the effect that noise from the Glasgow study had on the signal from their large European data set and how this varied depending on the baby's age and the frequency of the measurement. So what were their results? Firstly, if we concentrate on that short study on noise, 
which was looking at those 20 Glaswegian babies, there was an average standard deviation of 82 grams. Interestingly, they had significant variability in the mean weights of babies from morning to evening. So what they found was that infants statistically significantly weighed more in the morning than they did in the evening. The next part is to look at the impact noise has depending on the baby's age or the frequency of the observations. As you get older, how quickly you are growing slows. So your growth velocity reduces. And so noise, which is that variability between measurements, is more likely to have an impact. Their results showed that below six months of age, even weighing every two weeks was unlikely to be impacted by noise because the babies are just growing so much. But after then, specifically around 10 months of age, the increment in weight slows to such an extent that noise alone could explain the change in weight or height in a two-week period and that there is a 16% risk of no weight gain at all. So to summarise that again, if you start weighing a baby every two weeks at around the age of 10 months, the variability in noise weight is potentially greater than the average weight increment. They observed that the shorter the interval between measurements, the more likely noise was to affect the result. They did not have these issues of noise affecting signal when measurements were taken at four or eight weeks apart. Not only did they show this, but with more modelling, they demonstrated that if you took a baby older than six months running along the ninth centile for growth velocity, so, you know, low weight gain, but acceptable, noise from two weekly measurements could falsely reassure you that they were actually on a higher velocity centile and you might miss a baby who had faltering growth. So to summarise, babies grow so quickly in the first six months of life and so your weights are less likely to be affected by noise. However, as they get older and their growth velocity slows, performing weights as frequently as two weekly could be affected by noise and so it should be avoided or interpreted with caution and certainly not acted on based on such close together measurements alone. Another interesting point that came from this article is that babies' weights vary considerably through the day. So if monitoring really closely, you need to be picking the same time of day to weigh the baby and that will improve your accuracy for weight. The way I've interpreted this is that if I'm worried about a baby who has faltering growth and I want accurate data, I'm going to try and weigh the baby at the same time of day. And I'm going to try and provide enough time between measurements to lessen the impact noise has on the signal that I'm looking for. I hope you found that useful and thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any thoughts or feedback about this summary, then please comment on the PeterHub website. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. Hi all, my name is Paulina and I'm going to talk through an article that discusses a very common problem in paediatrics, fever in babies under three months, which actually ties in really nicely with Flick's paper, Infant E. coli UTI, is it associated with meningitis? So mine is a research article titled 
validating clinical practice guidelines for the management of febrile infants presenting to the emergency department in the UK and Ireland. The study was carried out by Dr Waterfield from Belfast in conjunction with a group of emergency physicians from multiple centres, including our very own Dr Little and Dr Monday from Bristol. So, why did I pick this paper? I picked it as it's a super common scenario, and I think it's really important that we actually understand the data behind the scenarios that often we barely think about, as the guidelines are so well drilled into us. The other reason is that I personally struggle with the relatively reflex response of starting IV antibiotics in babies under three months presenting with a fever. Clinical judgment obviously comes into play as well as using guidelines, but there are still a large number of babies under three months that we unnecessarily treat, as none of us want to risk missing the 10 to 20% who do have a serious or invasive bacterial infection, which I'm going to collectively call a significant infection for the rest of the podcast. And whilst we all like to think we wouldn't miss a sick baby, the signs can sometimes be subtle on presentation, and missed even by the best of us. Hence, guidelines. However, I think the importance of the gut microbiome, a favourite topic of my mother's, and the impact on longer-term health, including through the really complex interplay between microbes and gene expression, is slowly becoming better understood, and I'm sure will begin to impact our use of broad-spectrum antibiotics more in the coming years, as that balance of known risk-benefit starts to tip. So what's out there already? Well, in other countries, they're using validated guidelines which use procalcitonin, for which there is a growing body of evidence within paediatrics demonstrating its superiority to CRP and FBC in acute infection. It rises more rapidly, and it's a bit more specific to bacterial infections, as it increases after exposure to endotoxins. But it's not yet being used in most paediatric departments in the UK, as there isn't quite enough evidence to support its use yet. So this paper is actually really useful in that it compares UK-relevant guidelines to see which most accurately predicts the babies at highest risk of a significant bacterial infection. The three guidelines they looked at were sepsis, recognition, diagnosis and early management, or NICE Guidance 51, which I'll refer to as the Sepsis 51 guideline, and fever in under fives, assessment and initial management, NICE Guideline 143 which we'll refer to as the Fever 143 Guideline, and a third, written by the British Society for Antimicrobial Chemotherapy, which we'll refer to as the BSAC Guideline. The Sepsis 51 Guideline is the most cautious, advising blanket treatment with broad-spectrum antibiotics for every under three-month-old with a fever of 38 degrees. So that one's easy enough to remember. Then the other two guidelines are fairly similar, both advocate treatment of all under one-month-olds with a fever, but for one- to three-month-olds, they allow clinical judgment and labs to play a part in the assessment. If the assessing clinician feels they appear unwell, both guidelines advise treatment with IV antibiotics. So hot and sick equals antibiotics. The two guidelines differ in their choice of labs. Fever 143 advises use of the white cell count, either less than 5 or greater than 15 is significant, whereas BSAC advises use of CRP, and greater than 20 is significant, or a positive urinalysis. So the paper also threw in an extra element. They wanted to compare how well clinicians were able to detect significant bacterial infections versus the guidelines. So let's look at the study methods. The study collected data from all infants under three months presenting with a fever, and they were deemed eligible if they had a temperature of 38 degrees at triage. 
Six different tertiary hospital A&E departments were involved, looking at presentations between the 31st of August 2018 to 1st September 2019. As a retrospective observational study, no consent was necessary. In total, 555 babies were eligible and included. So, what did they do with the data? They compared the baby's clinical data and lab results to the guidelines to figure out what the guidelines would have advised and then determined the predictive accuracy of the guidelines and the doctor's decisions by using the cultural results to determine how many treated actually had a serious or significant infection. So predictive accuracy was the primary outcome of the study. How did they define their infections? So the paper said that a serious bacterial infection was a UTI with a single organism growth greater than 100,000 colony-forming units, and an invasive infection was an infection showing a positive blood or CSF culture or PCR with an organism that was not deemed to be a contaminant. So what were the paper's secondary outcomes? They looked at rates of serious and invasive bacterial infections, as well as the causative organisms, how long babies were admitted for, how long they were treated for, how many attempts the babies had for each procedure, and then also try to look at which signs, symptoms and risk factors may help to more accurately predict a significant infection. Quite a lot of data to sift through. Let's look at the results. So perhaps the most reassuring result to come out of this was that overall, doctors' judgement was superior to the guidelines when considering sensitivity and specificity together. Phew! But I guess we are also using guidelines based on NICE alongside our clinical judgement. And actually, when it came to sensitivity, we were marginally worse than the sepsis 51 guideline, although not statistically significantly so. And given that they treated absolutely everyone, it would be pretty hard to be more sensitive. Sepsis had a sensitivity of 1, clinicians had a sensitivity of 0.96, fever 0.91, and BSAC 0.82. So let's look at specificity. This is where doctors outshone the guidelines with a specificity of 0.27, which doesn't sound great, but when you consider the next best specificity was the BSAC guideline at 0.14, it starts to sound a lot better. And that's the one that uses CRP or urinalysis to distinguish. Fever143 had a specificity of 0.09 and sepsis, not surprisingly, zero. So it's clear that we are treating a lot of babies unnecessarily using all of these guidelines. And it goes back to that fear of missing just the one. So how many babies in this study actually did have a significant infection? Well, out of 555, 78 did have a significant infection, i.e. 14%, which is in line with previous international data. The majority were UTIs, i.e. a serious bacterial infection, and that was 66 babies, whilst 12 babies had invasive bacterial infections. Five of those had meningitis and seven had bacteremia. The most common pathogen was E. coli, causing one meningitis, five bacteremia and 45 UTIs. So how about the variables they looked at? Well, they looked at 23 different variables, ranging from male sex to meningism, and only three of these showed any significance in terms of their incidence in babies with a significant infection versus those without. 19.1% of the babies without a significant infection appeared well, versus 9% with a significant infection. What I take for that from that statistic 
is that there were seven babies with a significant infection that actually did appear well, which again is why we have such a cautious approach to this age group, as they can be so difficult to assess. So they also found that there was a slightly younger age group with significant infection, with a median age of 44 days versus 56 days old in the group without a serious infection. And also found that those with a vaccine in the last 24 hours were much less likely to have a significant infection. Reassuringly, no well-appearing babies post-vaccination had a significant infection. And what about the blood tests? So the medians of the total white cell count, neutrophil count and CRP were all significantly higher in the significant infection group, although the interquartile ranges overlap within all groups. The CRP had the most statistically significant difference with a median CRP of 33 in the serious infection group and an interquartile range of 11 to 79 versus a median of 13 in the not serious illness group with a range of 5 to 31. And this had a p-value of less than 0.0001, so pretty significant. White cell count showed a minimal difference with a median of 11.2 in the not serious infection group and 13 in the significant infection group. So CRP is quite a bit more discerning even in this age group. It is worth noting here that not all babies in the study had blood tests, so they created imputed values for these using some clever computer wizardry and then applied the guidelines to these. But when they were carrying out the statistics, they repeated the analysis without this imputed data to minimise the potential for bias. None of the babies who didn't have blood tests ended up having a significant infection, as they looked for reattendances on all babies up to seven days after discharge. And luckily, none of the reattenders had a missed significant infection. In total, 53 babies, or 10%, were discharged with no extended observation or antibiotics. And a quick summary of the other secondary outcomes. So... The median number of cannulation attempts was 1, but the median number of LP attempts was 3, which seems like a pretty huge number, 328 babies having 3 attempts each. Then the median length of stay was, as you'd expect, slightly shorter in those without a significant infection at 48 hours versus 72 hours for those with a significant infection. Let's look at the discussion and interpretation. The authors agreed that the reason clinicians were better at judging significant infections needs teasing out. I suspect that most of the untreated babies were those that had had vaccinations in the preceding 24 hours, but that number didn't account for all of the babies who weren't treated, and the study doesn't discuss what other tests were being carried out, e.g. rapid viral testing, which can definitely impact opinions. Although that's a little down to personal practice, because some consultants will still want to do a full septic screen on a baby who's less than three months old with a viral bronchiolitis, whilst others are happy to observe. Given that these were all carried out in tertiary centres, I suspect that they did have access to these tests. And that's another point they discussed in the limitations section, the transferability of the study findings to DGHs, given that they were all based in tertiary centres. Tertiary hospitals tend to have their own paediatric A&E rather than an offshoot of adult A&E, so the doctors are likely more confident in assessing babies. Another limitation of the study is that even though the total cohort was a decent size, the number of babies with a serious or invasive infection was small and so might be underpowered to draw any real conclusions. So I think their main real conclusion was that none of the guidelines are really good enough and more research is needed as always. 
but they did discuss the step-by-step and pecan guidelines, which both use procalcitonin and compared these in terms of sensitivity and specificity. Pecan has the best sensitivity at 0.98 and with a specificity of 0.6, far outshines all of our implementable guidelines. So I'm sure over the coming years, procalcitonin will start working its way into our practice. So, what am I going to take from this? I suppose I'll more confidently discharge those babies post-vaccines if they appear well, obviously once we've sent a urine sample. Aside from that, I'm not sure that there's enough evidence to actually change my individual practice at the moment, but I will be looking out for future research on procalcitonin. Thank you for listening. That's all for this episode. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to get in touch via our email address, podcast at pizzahub.co.uk or via the Pizzahub website. Equally, if you'd like to get involved, we always welcome your voices, so please do get in touch. Thanks, Thanks for listening. listening.